Our leader will now share for 20 to 25 minutes describing what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. So let's welcome tonight's speaker, Ron. Good evening. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I have to stand up as the minister. And I didn't know I was going to be a minister when I was in my disease. Right? I still have a disease, but I'm not in my disease. Sometimes I fall back into it, but most of my life I don't live in it. Um, I parked about a couple blocks away, and as I was walking here, I realized that this was part of my childhood. Um, I grew up in Colma, and I have a dear cousin who lived uh, right across the street from St. Luke's Hospital, and another dear cousin and his family who lived in the sunset. They lived all over the sunset. I grew up in an alcoholic family, the classic alcoholic family, mostly when the men were the alcoholics and the women were the codependents. But I didn't know my aunt and uncle at the time who lived in the Sunset District. They would move all the time. I, hadn't, I never even thought about why. But now I guess it's probably they couldn't keep the rent or they couldn't keep the place. For some reason, their life couldn't be stable. Right? So I spent a lot of time in the Sunset and some in the Richmond District, and now I'm in the East Bay. But anyways, so it was... It was but that's where my food addiction began, was in my childhood. And I can remember the dinner table was horrible. It was horrible. My dad would rule the dinner table. Uh, I remember the, the biggest fights him and my mom had at the dinner table, and there were lots of them. The biggest fights were about how many grams were in the meal, right? Because my dad was just a stickler about grams, so he because he didn't want to get fat, right? He used to. Do we describe food in here or not? You can. You can. So my dad's lunch. My dad's lunch. Let me tell you about my dad's lunch. <laughs> so he used to get a piece of bologna, and he'd cut it in quarters. He'd get a couple of carrot sticks, and he'd chop them in half, and he'd get himself a, a cookie, and he'd wrap each of them in wax paper. Because that's how old I am. So, that's a joke, buddy. So, it's okay to laugh. Um, so, and, and, and he'd stack them. And I couldn't believe that's what he took for lunch. Just that amount of food. And so, that's what I grew up with. I grew up with this father who was so obsessed about, about um, gaining weight. And then the mother who was so stressed out that the meals were okay. But, you know, um, they weren't great. But we had three meals a day. We never went hungry. Um, I remember sitting at the table. I remember one, one time I reached for another piece of bread. And my dad goes, that's your sixth piece of bread. And I went, no, Dad, it's only my fourth. <coughs> and my mom goes, Ron, he was kidding. Right? But I didn't know that. All I know is that's how I survived, by eating. So that was my first addiction. I'm also an alcoholic and a pothead and a sex addict, right? And so, as I grew up, um, my dad and mom really didn't buy nutrition, nutritionist food. 
they bought the cheapest they could get. And so what I didn't, what I know now, what I didn't know then, was I wasn't being nourished. I, I, I wasn't getting healthy food. So I think that also helped to be part of my disease. You know, tr trying not only to feed myself emotionally, but physically at the same time. And so I was just always eating um, when I could. And I was probably, maybe when I was a kid growing up, um, probably in my 10, 12s, um, I was probably maybe 20, 25 pounds overweight. And my dad was just embarrassed to be with me. He was always telling me to hold my stomach in. So there was, there was all this shame around it. And, um, and then when I got in my teenage years, that's when I started to pack on the weight. And um, for me, the biggest part of my bottom was the emotional part. And, and the older I got, the more I, I drew in and the more that I wouldn't trust people. Even the people that I loved and trusted didn't really know what I was thinking, right? But they all loved me, and, but I just kept putting on the weight, and I kept putting on the weight. And by the time I left, by the time I left the skid marks on the driveway when I was 21 years old, I moved from Colma to Santa Cruz when I was 21, and my addictions just blossomed. They just, they just blew up. And um, my pot addiction just got, that was my home. Pot was my home. But when you smoke pot, you sit in front of the TV and eat. I don't know, that's what I did. And, and, and the more I ate, the more I got stoned, the more lonely I got. The more, the more I separated myself from the world and the people who loved me. And that went on for about eight or nine years. And that was the heaviest I ever got. I remember I was in my late 20s, and I remember looking at my license, and it was 263 pounds, and I stopped weighing myself. For whatever reason, I was still weighing myself. And it must have been another year, so I must have got up to about maybe 280, 275, 280. And um, those are my late 20s, and I had this big nervous breakdown um, around Christmas, because I love Christmas, but I had this huge nervous breakdown, and I started to see a therapist. And it was about the third or fourth session we had, and I sat down, and I said, I don't want to live. I just, I don't want to live. I, I don't want to commit suicide, but I don't want to live. I was in so much pain. The the black hole of loneliness that, that was in me. I didn't, but the point, I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live where I was. And I didn't have any options. The, when I left home, this is how you handle life. The Niners score, you take a shot. And the Niners don't score, you take a shot. And then in between, you take a shot, you know, and that's how I, that's what I took from my house, right? Because my parents didn't know what to do raising kids. So, um, so I said that to my therapist and she said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you know, if I had a funeral, nobody would come except my mother. 
And that's because she has to, because she's my mom. You know, and I meant it. I really, really meant it. I didn't think anybody knew who I was. And I was so depressed. And, um, but I have an ego. I have an ego. And the next thing the therapist said was, well, maybe, maybe we should put you on antidepressants. And I went, I'm not nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to work with her because I didn't want to be known as somebody on antidepressants. That was my ego. And what started that day was I just started to let go of all the untruths about who I was. Right? All the untruths about that I have to be what people want me to be. And not what people wanted me to be, but what I thought what people wanted me to be. Right? You get that? There's a big difference. Not even just my perception of what the world wanted me to be. Right? And so I gave this really cool talk in my home how meeting um, when I first got there. I got five 20-pound bags of dog food. Right? And I went through my life and I put them on the table. And each part of my life, I would put another 20 pounds on. And all of a sudden, the part I was just talking about, I took that, that fifth bag and I threw it on top. And it was like, you know, this long and took about that high off the table. And everybody gasped. They just gasped. Because you could see what we were carrying around. You know, what the pain was, was how it was manifesting itself physically. And I, I don't cry during shares, but I shed a tear when I saw that. Because that's where I was. That, that represented the black hole of loneliness that I was in. Right? And so after a couple years of therapy, then um, I was ready to give up alcohol and pot. Um, they'd stop working. You know, I would get stoned and cry. This isn't what I get stoned for, you know? <laughs> and and it, I've never been an emotional eater. I, I, I don't know what kind of eater I am. I don't binge. I mean, I, I've never, I don't know if I've ever finished a bag or a box of anything in one city. Right? But somehow I got the 280 pounds, right? So, um, so I just started working with my therapist, letting go of all these untruths. And I remember about six months into my recovery, I was talking to my mom, and she said, you know, Ron, when people from the neighborhood, when I see people from the neighborhood, the first person they ask for is you. I went, whoa, you know? And... And then, um, so it was going well for a while. I, I started to lose weight, and, and, and I got down to probably about 220 after a couple years of therapy. When I let go of these untruths, I was able to let go of the weight, right? Because I was starting to believe in myself, right? So I like to say, I had this vision of when I was in my disease, I visualize myself in my heart, and there's, there's, there's bars, 
right? It's a, it's a cell. And I'm sitting in my heart. Actually, I'm standing at the door watching the world go by. And the guards are a joint, a bottle of tequila, and a salami sandwich. Those were my guards. They were keeping me in. And I was watching the world go by. And as I was, I was doing therapy, and then I got into 12 steps, and, and I began to understand that I'm a unique, special person, but not like unique, unique. I'm like everybody else, right? Then I realized that the bar on the heart cage I had wasn't locked. And all I had to do was walk through it. And I did. And then I found out later, after I, I student started to do more and more recovery, is that when I would look for my higher power, I'd look everywhere. And all I had to do was turn around. Because my higher power was with me in that cell. Right? And so, as I began to understand that I have worth, the weight started to come off. But it wasn't easy. I, uh, you know, I was 280 in my, in, my, in my late 20s. When I got married in my late 30s, I had gone all the way down to 160. And then that's because I fell in love or lust. I don't know which one it was. But it got me down to 160. And then um, over the months, I met my wife. and. Life was feeling good, and all of a sudden I was back at 200, right? And then, but as I just kept letting go of these untruths, telling myself that I wasn't worthy, um, it was easier to keep the weight off. And, and, and then when I let go of the weight at 199, and I got down to about 150 with Jenny Craig, Any, anybody been on Jenny Craig? Um, it was great, and then I got back up to 175. But I never got past 175, you know? And, and my weight reflects how I feel about myself. You know, I wasn't... I think the one thing that I carried through, starting with, with the family dinners, was shame around my food. Right? So I started coming to OA in 1989. And I shared my first, I chaired my first meeting in like 1990. And I want to say it's really good to see like men in the room. Right? Because when I started OA, there weren't any men. Thank you. There weren't any men. And it was really hard to get connected. Right? Um, so I, I stayed there for probably three or f about a year, and then I left. Um, and then I went to work on my sex and love addiction, because that's where, that's where I grew up, was in SLAA. Because I, I was ready to let go of the loneliness, and then I began to see that I had this thing. It wasn't about until I was about 40 when I could actually say I was a man. I didn't know that I was a man before my 40th birthday. Really be okay and sit well with that. 
I remember um, I was probably a couple years uh, sober, and I used to go to the Ben Lum Ben, ben Lomond Fellowship up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I lived in Santa Cruz, and I worked in Boulder Creek, and they had a meeting every day that I could go to, a morning meeting, and it was mostly women. So I said, okay, today I'm going to talk about how I feel about men, because I don't think there's going to be, if there aren't any men there, I'm going to really pour this out, right? Because I had never done that in a group before. So I did this, and I, and I, I talked about how men didn't like me, and I don't think I was worthy of being a man, and, and I let it out. And all of a sudden, this guy from the back room goes, Hi, I'm Jim. <laughs> I went, oh, my God. What am I going to do? <laughs> and he stood up, and he talked about growing up with four sisters. Oh, wow. You know, I'd never seen him before, and I'd never seen him again. I don't know who he was. Right? But that was so freeing to, to get it that another man had the same feelings I did. Right? And so... And then in SLAA, I, I got to the point where women, a friend of mine said, well, we're on, uh, I went, so I was, a, my girlfriend got up, I was in went to school, and she got up, and she got dressed, right? She put on her underwear, and she put on her skirt, and she put on her blouse, and she put on her shoes. And I said, something was missing, something was missing. And she goes, yeah, you were waiting for the magic halo. Right, for her to put on the magic halo. And that's what I thought about women. Right? And sitting in SLAA, I began to realize that women are different from men, but they're a lot more um, common traits that we have as human beings. And I, and I was down here, they were up here, and it started to go like this. Right? And so this whole journey for me has been about understanding that I have value, understanding that I have worth. I was, uh, like I said, I grew up in Colma. I grew up on a court. There were about two or three families that we grew up with, about 10 of us kids grew up together. And a couple years ago, one of them, Evelyn, had a 60th birthday party. And so, I hadn't really been around their lives since we were like in our early 20s. And so I come to this party and everybody's got kids. Everybody's got kids and they're all 20 and they got babies and stuff. And so I walk up and I walk up to Evelyn's daughter and I go, hi, I'm, I'm Ron. She goes, oh, nice to see you. Nice to, I'm glad you're here. And I said, I'm Ronnie. <gasps> you're Ronnie? Hi, how are you? And it happened like that with almost every kid that I met. It means that these people who knew me until from birth till I was 20 thought that much about me. And I never knew it. I never knew it. And it was because of the home I grew up in and the, and, and the young beliefs that I had about myself that I wasn't worthy. And I've been part of half. I can't believe, I can't believe that I've been off flour and sugar for about, I don't know, 10 years. I, I mean, I'm sure somewhere there's been some sugar put in my body, some packaged food or something that I wasn't diligent about. 
but I don't eat sugar. And if this society didn't eat sugar, I would be okay with that. But I struggle with it, like probably many of us, because you, know, you got to look at it every day. And, 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 and I work in an office, so you know, it's always there. Right? i got five minutes left. Okay, thank you. So, but I can actually say that the, that the compulsion for flour and sugar is gone. And if I didn't have to look at it on a daily basis, I wouldn't think about it. You know, um, I still struggle with my weight. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why I still struggle with my weight because I'm not where I was. I am a wonderful human being. I mentioned um, that I was a, that I wanted to stand up because there was a minister in me. I'm in my in my faith. I'm a lay minister, and I'm starting to go to other churches and talk. Um, one thing I didn't mention: anybody see the King's Speech, the movie The King's Speech? It was about uh, King Edward in the thirties, and, and he stuttered intensely. That's what I did the first 25, 30 years of my life. You know, I wasn't looking to stand up and speak in front of people. I was looking to get a sentence out within 10 seconds. I was looking to be able to say my name in less than three seconds or 10 seconds. You know, and as I started to follow this path of knowing that I'm worthy, um, my speech got better and better. And also, my higher power became more and more involved in my life. And I actually, I let my higher power become more and more involved in my life. Right? And now I get to stand in front of people who believe like I do and talk about God. Who the thunk? This little fat kid Riding the 10 Monterey at 10.30 at night, feeling I'm like, like no one in the world is ever going to like me, is, can stand up in front of people and talk about God. And people like what I say. And I talked a, a lot about um, that I'm, I'm a great guy and, 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 that, and that I'm worthy. Well, I say that with humility. Because I know everybody's the same. I'm no more great than anybody else, but I'm no more less great than anybody else, right? I just believe the one thing that 12 Steps has given me is empowerment. That's what I get from this program. And I don't want to call it a program. It's a lifestyle for me. It's a living path, right? Because principles before personality. That's what I really try to live by, is try to live by God's will. And, I, and I've also begun to understand the last couple years that I used to pray all the time, thy will be done. But now I know when, when, I'm, when I'm in my authentic self, my will coincide with God's will. So now I say our will be done. That doesn't mean I don't mess up. That doesn't mean I don't overeat. That doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. It just means when I'm in my right, when I'm in my authentic self, my will is right on with 
with my higher power as well. So I'm going to stop. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for letting me do service and talk. Hopefully you've got something out of this. But I just want you to know that I understand. I know what it's like to throw a piece of food in the garbage and go, well, that's not too bad. I'll, I'll just try it. No one's around. And pick it back out of the garbage and eat it. I know what that's like. But I know what it's like to stand up in front of a piece in, in a room full of strangers and go, I love myself and be okay with it. So 